From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tobacco use remains the single largest preventable cause of disease and premature death in the U.S. Despite that, millions of Americans still smoke and more start every day. Nicotine is the reason people... People smoke, but nicotine is not what kills patients. It's the tobacco that kills patients. People need to understand that. Patients want to quit without nicotine and all, but nicotine is a bridge to help them quit, and it doesn't cause any of the consequences that you see with smoking tobacco. Also on the program, keeping a food diary can help you avoid unwanted weight gain during the holidays. And some great ideas from nutritious holiday dining. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the American Cancer Society, 42 million people in the U.S. still smoke cigarettes, while another 12.4 million smoke cigars, and some 2.3 million smoke tobacco in pipes. So while the overall number of tobacco users in the U.S. has declined in recent years, a lot of people still smoke. Too many. Too many people still smoke. The Great American Smokeout took place last Thursday. It's a day when people who smoke are encouraged to quit, and those who have quit are praised for their efforts. Here to bring us up to date on nicotine addiction and the tools to overcome it is Dr. John Ebert. Dr. Ebert is an internal medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic, and he treats patients at the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center. Welcome back to the program. It's good to see you, Dr. Ebert. It's fantastic to be back. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Why? Why? After all of this time, do so many people still smoke cigarettes? Because it's an addiction. People love to smoke. And then what happens is there's this dissociation between liking to smoke and wanting to smoke. So by the time that you're well into your addiction, people don't want to want, really want to smoke at all, but they, they still get some reinforcement from it. And I think the, uh, the key factor is um, that... Prevention is going to help us the most here. I mean, I think when we look at a lot of the things that we may be talking about here today, it's all still going to be in prevention, getting people to quit smoking. And becoming a smoker as a teen, is that not a huge piece of this puzzle? So, yeah. So most tobacco dependence starts in adolescence and teenagers. And uh, if you look at um, the addiction to any drug, really, most addiction sets up before the age of 26 years old. So if you can actually prevent a child or a person or an individual or an adolescent from being exposed to any drugs, if you could somehow lock them away uh, from the world and prevent, prevent them from being exposed to any intoxicating substance by the age of 26, the likelihood they will ever be dependent on any substance is close to 0%. 99% of all smokers started smoking before the age of 26. Now, there's been several successes in terms of some overall decrease in the amount of smokers, but I recognize there's also some challenges. Where have those successes been? Where do you see the ongoing challenges? The successes we've enjoyed uh, certainly is, an, is developing new therapeutic modalities. That's been extremely helpful in the clinical setting. But even before, you know, most patients quit on their own. 
I mean, that's the truth. The patients that I see at the Nicotine Dependence Center are people that have really struggled to quit on their own. And they're seeing us and seeking subspecialty consultation because they haven't been able to do it. What is the most effective? There's two strategies that are the most effective for decreasing the prevalence of tobacco use in the population. The first is clean indoor air laws. There's no question that those decrease the prevalence of use because they increase the likelihood of quit attempts and they decrease the number of cigarettes smoked per day. And the other one is increased excise taxes. So if you increase the price of cigarettes, uh, the prevalence um, goes down. And we wanted to talk a little bit about adolescents today, and that's certainly true among adolescents as well. And we can talk about some of the factors that lead adolescents to use, um, but they are very sensitive to price increases on tobacco products. So, yeah, let's let's talk about adolescents. If I look at how much a pack of cigarettes costs, and I just can't even imagine paying for that when I was a kid, uh, are you figuring out some mark? where it can be priced that kids won't be willing to buy it anymore? Yeah, so I'd like to see cigarettes priced at $25 a pack. <laughs> and that will definitely um, that'll definitely have a huge impact on, on the prevalence of it. Um, obviously, a lot of this is politics. And certainly states stand, uh, make a lot of money, uh, but the politics uh, get in the way if we increase excise taxes. So the, there's really no limit to the amount you can get, you know, surprisingly, there's a, there's a, there's a direct correlation. The, the, the more you raise the taxes, the, 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 the greater the decrease in prevalence and the higher the number of quit attempts that people will have who currently smoke. Dr. Um, Tosh mentioned in the intro that 12.4 million smoke cigars, and it seems like when I'm in the stores, I can see there are a lot of fruit-flavored cigars. I would imagine that those are also aimed towards kids or teenagers. That's great. So there's been some recent data that came out where they looked at 14,000, you know, adolescents, um, and and they asked the question, when you started using cigarettes or tobacco products, uh, how many of those were flavored, and was flavor a big driver for you? So when they when they when they assess these um, these students, these youth, eighty percent of them reported that the first tobacco product they used, either cigarette or non-cigarette tobacco product, were flavored. And when they asked what were the what were the big maintainers for you, why did you keep using tobacco? Eighty percent of them reported that it was for the flavoring uh, that they enjoyed the tobacco the most. How have things changed in terms of adolescent smoking? You've gotten better, gotten worse, and what are some of those factors? So between 2011 and 2014, the prevalence of cigarette smoking among middle and high school students has decreased. But that has corresponded with uh, significant increases in the use of electronic cigarettes and also the uh, increase in hookah. Uh, use. Would you mind uh, explaining yeah, both explain of these things a little is. bit more? <laughs> both so, the hookah and the <laughs> e-cigarette. Well, let me start with the uh, the hookah first, and then we can talk about the electronic cigarette. So the hookah dates back thousands of years. It's a it's a water pipe. It comes by a lot of different names. So it's uh, shishi, nargili, uh, hookah, hubbly bubbly, and it's a very social sort of tobacco use behavior. Um, it, is, it's, it consists of a, a bottle of water um, with a tube, and you burn tobacco on the top, and then there's a mouthpiece with some hosing, and you, you create negative pressure, and then you get the sense that it's safer because the tobacco smoke goes through water. And it's a very uh, social Uh, sort of experience, and it can come in different flavors. What's most challenging for me with this whole addiction is that the types of tobacco they put in a hookah, it tends to be very highly flavored, so it's got lots of of moisture in it, 
and that moisture content requires it to be burning constantly. And one of the things they do to, to make the hookah burn constantly is they put these charcoal chips on it. So you're inhaling charcoal smoke that keeps the tobacco burning, and uh, then you're inhaling that smoke. And when they've compared water pipe to cigarette smoke, there's a much higher volume of smoke that's inhaled compared to a conventional cigarette, and there's a lot more um, you know, impurities and heavy metals and, and carbon monoxide that's consumed during a typical water pipe session than compared to a conventional cigarette. So adolescents are using hookahs more often. They are. And actually what's interesting about that is when we see cigarettes declining, we see cigarette consumption among adolescents declining among uh, uh, females and males. And when you see e-cigarettes increasing, it's mostly among males. But when you look at hookah increases, it's predominantly females um, that we're seeing the increases in. And some of that might have to do with that uh, female adolescents tend to be a little more social. It's kind of a social experience. And I guess uh, maybe the males tend to be a little bit more loners doing their e-cigarettes. Chewing. Using yeah. chew tobacco. Oh. I think back to when I was in school and the guys would have whatever wintergreen flavored chewing tobacco. I don't know what it was, but yeah, it he- was nasty. Heavily flavor driven market and, and a lot of the ri- risk factor for smokeless tobacco use is actually uh, athletics. And so mm-hmm. you'll see a lot of the baseball players and a lot of football players um, using these products. There is a misperception that it enhances uh, athletic performance. Uh, and you had mentioned e-cigarettes. Yeah. So those look like the dorkiest thing in the world to me. Are you telling me that kids think that they look cool? So, yeah. So the, <laughs> Do they look cooler than regular cigarettes? Is that the thing? I guess. I guess. And, and, and media has really had a huge influence on this. And seeing people like Leonardo DiCaprio smoking these um, has really positively impacted mm. the utilization. So media and movies um, increased the prevalence. And, and so these products are essentially propylene glycol. Uh, which is a pharmaceutical, um, which is a pharmaceutical product that's a food approved or FDA approved food additive or, uh, vegetable glycerin, which you can also use for cooking. And those products, um, are essentially a lithium battery with a heating element and you put the propylene glycol or the vegetable glycerin in there with the nicotine because nicotine's mm-hmm. a liquid. And then when you entrain air in these devices, it, it, it heats up the propylene glycol or vegetable glycerin and you make vapor. So they don't call it smoking, they call it vaping. And so they. Because there's no tobacco involved, it's just nicotine? There's no tobacco, um, right. There's no tobacco, but the confusing part of that is that sometimes you will find tobacco-specific nitrosamines in the propylene glycol and the vegetable glycerin. And what the reason you you see that in there is are those imp- those are impurities mm-hmm. during the extraction process because I think people need to remember that nicotine is extract all the nicotine even in the in the products that we sell to treat tobacco dependence, uh, so the patches and the gum, that nicotine is extracted from tobacco, but it's completely pure. Uh, in the pharmaceutical company's answer to the FDA. The people that extract nicotine for electronic cigarettes don't answer to anybody. The e-cigarettes are completely unregulated by anybody, and they don't have to uh, stand up to good manufacturing practices, which is some of the danger. There's two different kind of generations of products. So they had the first-generation electronic cigarettes, which actually didn't deliver nicotine that very well, that, that well. And then they now have the they now have the new generation of the electronic cigarettes, and you can actually change the voltage and you can increase the voltage and increase the delivery of the vapor. And when you do that, um, you can actually increase the delivery of the nicotine. So uh, the vapor actually um, 
delivers uh, different amounts of nicotine de- depending upon the, the, the degree to which it's heated or how much voltage is applied to it and how much smoke is generated. So the, the, the new products, the point here is the new products are incredibly sophisticated. You can upload um, hard, you know, you can u- upload firmware to it. You can download uh, tracking of the number of puffs and the volume of puffs. These are, these are incredibly sophisticated products. Wow. We're talking about overcoming tobacco use and overcoming nicotine addiction with Mayo Clinic and Internal medicine specialist, Dr. John Ebert. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, beyond a certain age, the damage is done and quitting smoking no longer has any health benefit. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. And I'm Pratish Tosh, sitting in for Dr. Tom Shives. We're talking about overcoming nicotine addiction with Mayo Clinic internal medicine specialist, Dr. John Ebert. Dr. Ebert, before the break, we were talking about e-cigarettes, and we didn't really get a chance to say, what is the damage that e-cigarettes can do? Why are they bad? Because if there's no tobacco involved, what's the problem? So lots of controversy around that. So one of the the, the main controversy revolves around the issue of how much safer are they than cigarettes and conventional cigarettes, and are they truly safe? So we try to separate those issues. There's been some estimates that electronic cigarettes, if you completely converted from conventional cigarettes to electronic cigarettes, that they're 96% safer, uh, whatever that means. And, And so they're safer, but are they truly safe? And certainly compared to smoking nothing, um, they're, they're, they're not, they're not safe. Um, and the risk really comes in when you talk about the flavoring. So they've done some very interesting and elegant studies in vitro studies. So these are studies involving cells, but not human beings. Um, and they've taken some of these flavoring agents and then had them interact with uh, different types of cells and, and see if they cause mutations mm. in those cells. And they've indeed observed that with different brands of flavoring agents, that these flavoring agents can cause mutations in cells. So one of the ones that they looked at that was incredibly sort of toxic was what they called cinnamon Ceylon. So, and, and cinnamon Ceylon is a flavoring agent that you can add to sure. your propylene glycol or vegetable glycerin and, and it tastes like cinnamon. And people like to flavor it that way. And what happens though is when it's heated, that, that, that cinnamon flavor becomes a cinnamaldehyde and that cinnamaldehyde is very uh, carcinogenic. So, uh, potentially carcinogenic. We don't have any human studies showing this. Um, but anyway, so there's a theoretical risk. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is, is we don't have big cohorts follow prospectively in time. It's that too we can new it's to too, have the research. It's too new. And, and I, but what we're seeing, in the, at least with smokers, is we're seeing that they're using it to try to quit smoking, and we're seeing it, it looks like they're using it to try to reduce the amount that they smoke. And so the trouble is, is that they may be continuing to smoke while they're using electronic cigarettes. They're, the damage may or may be there. Still, despite uh, not using actual cigarettes. Right. Getting to our myth or matter of fact question. Myth or matter of fact, beyond a certain age, the damage is done and quitting smoking no longer has any health benefit. That's a myth. Uh, you, you can quit at any age and derive health benefits. Within 48 hours of quitting smoking, you significantly reduce your risk for cardiovascular events, and cardiovascular events can certainly happen at every age. Not every disease entity that people are put at risk for with smoking reduces that quickly, though. Cardiovascular risk is a big one, um, and, it, and it reduces very quickly. But lung cancer takes about 15 years 
to get to the same risk that a non-smoker has uh, for lung cancer. So with each disease entity, there's a different time course, but you get those benefits at every age. We had a guest in talking about preparing for surgery, and they said even if you can quit smoking for a number of days before surgery, it helps your surgery recovery go so much better. And and there's some recent data that shows that that it helps with wound healing and, you know, that improves. So, yeah, so there's... a number of benefits that you derive perioperatively by quitting smoking. So if somebody is looking to quit smoking, what are some of the newest uh, new, new new things that are coming up as, as far as helping people quit? So we'll, we'll still continue to work uh, very heavily with Varenicline, um, which is the medication that we've uh, done a lot, number of studies with. One of the things that we've done interesting uh, with that study is that there was a recent article in, in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association this year that we published um, that looks at smoking reduction. And these are patients who didn't want to quit smoking. So the big issue is that not all patients want to come in and quit right away. So what we did in this study is we took patients who had no interest in quitting in the next 30 days, and we actually had them reduce um, the number of cigarettes they smoked, so 50% by four weeks, 70% by mm-hmm. eight weeks, and then try to have them quit. And they and it, it, with varenicline, it significantly increased the long-term quit rates. So the point is is that you don't have to quit right away, um, that there is medication out that can help you quit gradually. And most patients, when you look epidemiologically, most patients try to go through a period of reduction before they actually try to quit. The issue of smoking cigarettes, you've got the tobacco and the damage that that does and all of those ramifications. But the nicotine piece, what is the damage that nicotine does? Why Why is that key? So nicotine is the reason why people smoke. But nicotine is not what kills patients. It's the tobacco that kills patients. And, and, and I think that people need to understand that because I certainly see uh, in my p- practice that patients want to quit without nicotine and all. But nicotine is a bridge to help them quit. And nicotine is very safe, uh, and it doesn't cause any of the consequences that you see with smoking tobacco. So you can use the patches or you can use gum, but it's to start replacing that nicotine, getting it another way besides with the tobacco. Right. You just got to stop using tobacco. And we just passed a great national smoke out. Does that continue to be effective every year, or has that just kind of faded away? Yeah, kind of mixed results. Um, it, it, it really depends on uh, the pay. You know, some people are motivated by that, and others just see it as another tweet. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ebert, for updating us on the fight against nicotine addiction. Dr. John Ebert is an internal medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. He treats patients at the Nicotine Dependence Center at Mayo. Thanks for being here, Dr. Ebert. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, finding out how keeping a food diary during the holidays can help you avoid unwanted weight gain. And tips for making holiday dining both nutritious and appealing. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Crosswords, number games, mazes, and more. Brain games to help you hone your memory. But do they really work for people with Alzheimer's disease? Some of these are based in real science that, in fact, if you engage in these activities, you may keep yourself fresher 
and sharper for a longer period of time. The big challenge is, does this transfer into any real-life activities? We think so, but we don't know for sure. Director of Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, Dr. Ronald Peterson, says what they do know for sure is that keeping active mentally, physically, and socially may play a role in keeping you sharper longer. There's increasing evidence now that lifestyle modifications can affect your cognitive function going forward. doesn't mean that lifestyle modifications will necessarily prevent Alzheimer's disease. So why not go ahead and play those brain games, especially if you like them? And in other news, women have used the pill for years as a method of birth control and to manage symptoms of a number of different health conditions. Now, Mayo Clinic researchers have found that women with ovarian cancer who have a history of taking oral contraceptives may have better outcomes. The experts say they're not sure how the pill improves outcomes, but they say it may have to do with stopping ovulation or that contraceptive use may result in women developing a less aggressive form of the disease later on. Now, they they remind us that more research is needed, but that this new information may give hope to women with ovarian cancer. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh, sitting in for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. As the holidays fast approaching, you may be thinking, how can it keep from eating too much and gaining unwanted weight? The holidays, after all, offer multiple opportunities for overeating. First, it's good to be thinking about managing calorie intake before the holidays arrive. Second, there are some simple things you can do to keep from gaining weight in the weeks ahead. Foremost among those tools is the food diary. Indeed, keeping a written record of everything you eat could be the most important thing you do to avoid gaining unwanted weight over the holidays. Here to talk about keeping a food diary is Dr. Karen Grothy. Dr. Grothy is a psychologist at Mayo Clinic, and she helps people before and after weight loss surgery. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, the last time that you were here, Dr. Grothy, you said at the end of an interview, I think it was after the balloon surgery mm-hmm. interview that we did, you said, food diary is the number one tip that we give people. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, then we need to talk about that. Because yeah. if the food diary is the best tip that you have for folks, we want to know how can we use that going through the holidays or maybe starting off into the new year. Yeah, and my food has not been able to read or write, much less keep a diary. So- <laughs> Work. Yeah, how, what, what should I be telling my food to do? Well, first, tell us why a food diary works. You know, um, most of us tend to underestimate how much we eat. So a lot of us, especially if we've had struggles with managing weight before, we have an idea that, you know, okay, if I started my day with breakfast from fast food, it's probably not the best thing. But we probably don't have that full awareness of that was 1,200 calories, and maybe my daily calorie goal is 1,800 calories. So it gives us that increased awareness of actually how much we're eating. And if we're not kind of measuring and writing things down, we tend to underestimate by about 50%. So if I think I'm eating 2,000 calories a day, but I'm not measuring or writing down, I'm probably eating closer to 2,500. And when you say estimating, if I'm going to write down that I ate half a cup of pasta, then that also to me is not just a food diary. It's doing a lot of weighing and measuring and all of that too. Absolutely. And and a couple of keys to that is that we tend to drift to our American environment. So I think I know what a cup of cereal looks like in my bowl. I measure it for a a while and then I think, oh, I got that. I know how much that is. Over time, it gradually increases. I mean, has anyone uh, ever measured half a cup of ice cream? Right. That's what the serving size is. And it's kind of once you finally look at it and put it in your bowl, 
most of us aren't eating half a cup. But the other thing that we have to do is when we measure, level it off. Mm. So it's not a big piling heaping scoop that's one cup. That'll also kind of add up there, sure. too. How do you keep a food diary then? Are you? I'm thinking like a little notebook with a pen stuck through the, the wire. Yeah. Uh, is that the best way to do it or well, how, what are works, there, I suppose? Are there any electronic things that can help? Yes. And there's even more coming down the pipeline. So keep your ears to the ground for this stuff. But, you know, paper and pencil works great if that's what you're most comfortable with. But then you need a good calorie guide, right? you got to figure out where you're going to find out how many calories are in what you're eating. So there's a lot of those online. You can get books still from most grocery stores or Walmart. But now there's all these cool apps where they literally have barcode scanners, and that will pop your information right in there for you of whatever you're eating, you have to make sure you're getting the right serving size in there. Um, And the other thing to think about with these is all of our kind of mixed dish foods. So we're in Minnesota, the hot dish or the casserole, (laughs) right? That is the challenge. Yeah, the people that are listening across the rest of the country say a hot dish. (laughs) Don't you just use potholders for that? (laughs) (laughs) It's a casserole. Things that have multiple ingredients and you try to figure them out. There are diaries in these apps that people, like me, I've entered the breakfast burrito that I make at my house, is out there. If you use a certain app that I've used, you can enter breakfast burrito and find my calories for mine. But you'll also find five or six other entries that may or may not be exactly what you're eating. So you have to be a little careful. So I looked in there and I thought, the one that's 250 calories sounds good to me, but what if mine was really a 1,000? So you have to still work with them to be accurate, but you can make it so that it does not take that much time. Is there a is there a benefit if I my head's starting to swim a little bit okay. if I don't want to calculate all the calories and I don't need to know all of that kind of stuff? Yeah. Is there still a benefit of just recording what you're eating? That has to be helpful as well. Yeah, I think there really is. It's that awareness of the little handfuls of things that you pick up here and there that you tend to forget, the condiments and things that are sort of extra in your diet. But I think really getting that more complete awareness. I can't tell you how many patients have said to me, I had no idea my coffee had 700 calories. I had no idea. I thought I was doing great because I switched from you know, a hamburger and fries type of lunch to a sandwich type of lunch. And then we go online and we build that sandwich. And guess what? That sandwich was a thousand calories too. Oh, the mayonnaise. I know. And the cheese (laughs) and the bread sometimes. But really three days a week. The dose needs to be three days a week minimum. There's a good study in the last year or two that really found that you don't have to do it every day the rest of your life, but if you can do a full three days a week, and I usually say a weekday and a non-weekday or a workday and a non-workday, so do you just get a sense of your patterns? It's really helpful. Even for people who, let's say, they they may look at this as being daunting. I mean, what do you say to somebody who Mm -hmm. says, you know, I'm too busy to write down everything I eat? Yeah. Uh, You know, we talk about food diaries and people start to moan and groan because they hate them or they're sick of them or they've done them in the past. It takes longer at first, but we tend to be creatures of habit. So over time, as you get familiar with how many calories are in the typical way you make pizza at home or your typical sandwich for lunch, it gets easier. And when I've asked my patients that I call super users who really get into using the food diary, ultimately five to ten minutes a day they might spend. And there are little tricks you can do. Maybe do your food diary ahead of time. 
do it the night before for the next day to help you with meal planning, it's going to help you stick to it. Because I don't have time. I don't want to change what I've already written in there. So I'm going to stick to what I planned. So when people use these food diaries, what do you think uh, is the most surprising thing to them when they sort of go back and look at this? Yeah. Look at their own data. Yeah. You know, I think it's what well, it varies person to person, but it's how little things add up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I kind of maybe I nibble while I cook in the evening or after dinner. I kind of pick at things. And I didn't realize that was really adding up to almost a whole nother meal. There should be a, just a guard at the kitchen at 7 p.m. It says, there's a bouncer I need to hire, a kitchen bouncer for 7, that's 7 to 9 p.m. time. But then I think With people want to eat more. Yeah, right. <laughs> people want to eat more once you make it forbidden, oh. too. But the technology is really cool, and I think we will be close in the next few years to being able to take a photo of what you eat, and that will be able to help you estimate your calorie intake. There's even a device kind of being tested now elsewhere in the world where it's something you can wear and use kind of impedance data to to try to estimate how many calories you're wow. taking in. Wow, this is so it's getting easier and fancier all the time. So kind of keep your ears out for that. Finally, uh, because you are a psychologist, I have to ask this because I think once I heard you say you should include your emotions in your food diary. Mm-hmm. Explain a little bit about that. You know, that can really help people see patterns they weren't totally aware of and figure out when their high-risk times are, when they're most vulnerable. Is it my stressful time during the day? Is it my stressful days during the week? Is it my unstructured days and I'm bored? And that's what's driving my eating. And so it really helps you then kind of manage that. And I would add from a conference we were at last week, I might think about adding sleep. Hmm. Because if you're not getting enough sleep... You don't have that executive functioning to help stop you from some of those impulsive eating things that we we tend to do. So maybe you look at your sleep patterns a little bit, too. And are there any other patterns that we should look for when we've collected three or four weeks worth of food diaries? Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that we should to tip us off what a trigger might be or something? Yeah. I mean, any kind of triggers that are internal, like emotional, but also external. So there's the snack shelf at work or those kind of things. The other thing is, are all my calories loaded to the end of the day? Americans are sort of classic for doing this. And so it just gives me data or information to say, well, what if I experiment with more eating more at breakfast or eating differently earlier in the day? Does that help me with my evening time eating? Yeah, how, how else are, uh, are people using the sort of the data from their own food diaries to, to change how, how they approach? Not just maybe, maybe not just eating, but to their, their daily routines. Yeah. The, maybe applying structure when there isn't structure. Maybe saying no a little bit if I know my days that are really stressful are harder for my eating. Those types of things. It just helps them give a sense of how am I spending my calories? How am I, and also what's in my diet? So maybe, you know, my calorie goal, I'm kind of in there, but the quality of my diet isn't great, and then they might make shifts there. We've been talking about the importance of keeping a food diary with Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Karen Grothy. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, speaking of that food diary, some healthier holiday meal tips that won't break your calorie bank with dietitian Kate Zeratsky. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh. And I'm Tracy McRae. Planning special meals for the holidays can be complicated. There are family traditions to consider, perhaps the special dietary needs of a relative, uh, and of course... 
You want it all to be nutritious and taste good, too. Yeah, there's that, too. Here with some holiday food ideas is Mayo Clinic registered dietitian Catherine Zratsky. Welcome back to the program, Kate. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me back. Now, do you have a food diary? Do you use one of those in your daily life? I do not regularly uh, use a food diary, but... Because I work with food and talk about food all day long, I actually do keep kind of a running tally in my head. But I actually do some planning, too, so that helps. So pre-planning and thinking about what's next, it just helps keep keep me on track. Pre-planning, well, that's uh, going to be very useful here for this topic. <laughs> that's right. uh, as the rest of us are likely pre-planning for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, going into Christmas, you've got your Hanukkah meals, you know, whatever, all of these holiday meals that are upon us. With with anything in our culture, it, whether it be a holiday celebration or football games, there is food present. It, it's very much part of our culture to include food in, in our celebrations. As a dietitian, how do you help people who maybe have been working with Dr. Grothy, you know, for six months or nine months to say, all right, now we're getting into the holidays where food is such a huge part of what we're going to be doing. How does a dietitian help that person? Right. And I think it's a matter of looking at in, at food. Is it still a means of nourishment? It's you know, rightfully so, it's part of our celebrations. But within that, not losing sight of everything else we're there to celebrate. And so, yes, the food's important, and we're going to eat it, but let's not be overwhelmed by just that simple fact, that there's other fun things you can do um, with your friends and with your family beyond the kitchen table. It seems, though, that when it comes to... Uh, a dinner, let's say a Thanksgiving dinner, a Christmas dinner, that you've got your traditional foods that we have every single year, you know, whether it goes back to lutefisk people in this part (laughs) of the country or, you know, whatever it is, you know, a big lasagna dinner on Christmas Eve, you know, whatever it might be. When it comes to something like that, how can you help people to maybe tweak it a little bit? Right. And I think there's the, the idea that by and large, most of the foods or at least some of the foods at the celebration are healthy and nutritious. And I think putting that focus there, or if it's a very traditional food, um, it might be just the food that you have on that day. And so maybe you just say, you know what, I have this food once a year, so I'm going to take a portion of it, and I'm just going to really enjoy it. Um, Eat it slowly. Right. And, <laughs> and savor it. And savor it, exactly. And, and thirdly, you might consider that it's maybe a traditional dish, but there's so many great ways to what we call here, healthify it. (laughs) And so you can make some simple substitutions and shave off a few calories here and there that really in the long run, you know, might be beneficial. I could see that uh, causing some roadblocks in my family meals and things like that. What do you say to people when when they insist, uh, sorry, using the more traditional recipe rather than uh, something that maybe, you know, a healthier option of of the same thing? Right, and I think you... Two things. It might be that you go with the traditional just because it is. It's the tradition for that day, and you yourself can find that you can eat that particular dish with amongst other things, and you can make it work. Secondly, if someone is savvy in the kitchen, it might be that they can take that traditional dish, not only make it healthier, but make it better. And it might be within those cooking techniques or the ingredients used that you can actually make a really healthy dish 
that's really tasty as well. So you you might find that wow, you know, this is our traditional family sure. dish, but this is the best it's ever tasted. Now you sent me a handful of recipes that we will have available on our webpage. Um, we'll also be tweeting them out. But one of them was whole grain stuffing, fit and flavorful whole grain stuffing. Because that's one of the things you can't not eat stuffing. It's hard to. Okay, I can eat a little bit less of it, but how can you make it more healthy? Right, and I think first and foremost, you just look at the bread that you're using. And so you're going to use bread, but why not use a whole grain, a whole wheat bread? Um, And you are going to flavor that dish. And so you think about your stuffing beyond just you beyond just the, the basic bread flavor you if adding some herbs uh, whether they be dried or fresh and i believe this recipe has more fresh herbs in it you can really get a pop of flavor that uh, allows you to get away with less say added fats and such but still get a really tasty dish yeah you throw some fresh thyme and fresh sage and you're going to be happy no matter what i see something here for the mashed cauliflower <laughs> yeah. i gotta tell you, you know, the first time i had mashed cauliflower nobody told me it was mashed cauliflower and it was delicious. Do you think it was potatoes? You know, that's what it was. That's what I thought it was, and it was only later. It's one of those things where I was a little skeptical. I'm generally a little skeptical <laughs> about these things. And uh, they you know, tasted fantastic, and uh, I'm glad they sort of trick me. Cauliflower is about ready to take over kale as the new vegetable of the day. Yes, cauliflower and Brussels sprouts have made a huge comeback and they're both carciferous vegetables and so they are, as from the family they're in, they're a stronger vegetable but they're a vegetable that really lends itself well to being altered Mm -hmm. and so they, they stand up to being roasted, being shredded and having these other preparation methods that really allows you to transform them into something really tasty and really beautiful. Yeah, I found that out uh, this firsthand, and so yeah, I've been uh, far more uh, adventurous. Hey, as a new dad, you're going to have to learn how to make <laughs> these swaps out. Oh, these are mashed potatoes, kiddo. Not cauliflower, what? I don't know. They were they were great. Now I request the mashed cauliflower. Excellent. And what are some another recipe maybe that you would suggest that people try as a substitute or something along those lines? Right. I think we often think of traditional green bean casserole or things like that and what if you just did green beans or green beans with say a little flair so whether it be a little spice or a little citrus or something nutty added to them or if you took your traditional green bean casserole and took out your say canned cream of mushroom soup and rather made it with some real mushrooms and some low-fat milk and maybe a little uh, strong cheese. That could be really delicious too baked. Maybe the first year you do that, you have to make both of them. Just to just to ease the transition for the family. It it maybe maybe, but I think opening people's eyes to other preparation methods too. I think just just like your experience with the mashed yeah. cauliflower, it it can be just kind of a, a very eye opening and just kind of a wow experience for some people. Well, Kate, thanks for coming in with holiday food planning tips. Kate Zaratsky is a registered dietitian at Mayo Clinic. And that's our program for the week. For more information about topics discussed today. Visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine from one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your question in upcoming programs.
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman. Our social media editor is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.